With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ready? I was born ready. Welcome to Advisory Opinions. I'm Sarah Isger, that's David French, and a bit of a potpourri episode today, catching up on all the things. Uh, David, can we just start with a very quick question that I have, which is we got a lot of comments from our Clip versus Magazine discussion, oh boy. but the comment was, you shouldn't have used the word bullets. What? Um, there's so much I don't know. I know, I know, I know, Sarah. As soon as that, as soon as the word came out of my mouth, I thought, should I just pause now and re-record that? Because I was just, you know, sometimes you're in stream of talking and the right word escapes you for a moment. The bullet is not exact. Uh, the bullet is part of the round. Okay, so th- the round includes the bullet, which is the projectile that comes out of the weapon. Um the propellant that which is the you know the gunpowder etc the primer etc and so the a round is the complete cartridge okay that's the whole thing that you hold in your hand that's a round that's why it says a 30 round magazine and not a 30 bullet magazine but yeah as soon as i said it i was hoping against hope that people would just let it go you know <laughs> But I know gun people, Sarah, and and I knew I knew that was coming back. Glad we've got that so, cleared up. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, that's very important. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right, let's start at the Supreme Court. We have a stay and a cert grant in that Missouri social media case, Murphy versus Missouri. Uh, this has been bouncing around a little bit, David. But in short, this is about whether. The Biden administration's communications with social media companies um, may or may not have converted them into state actors, whether it was coercive, basically. Uh, The question actually for the courts has been, though, what to do in the interim that that case is pending and whether to issue an injunction against the Biden administration from communicating with social media companies. The first injunction from the district court, very, very broad, sort of no talking to social media companies with some small exceptions. It was narrowed by the circuit court. It went to the Supreme Court and there was an administrative stay put in place. Then interestingly, that administrative stay was extended for a few more days. So we kind of knew someone was writing something. So here's what we got on Friday. Uh, The application for stay is granted. It is also treated as a petition for certiorari, and the petition is granted on the question presented in the application. This is on the bigger uh, question, of course, on what what is that relationship? What is coercion? But we had uh, a dissent from that grant for the stay from Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch. Uh, Very interesting. David, what do you think? Yeah. This is very interesting on multiple levels because if folks remember, we've talked about this case um, at every stage. This is one of those rare cases that we talk about at the district level, the appellate level, and then now SCOTUS. We followed it all the way. We'll keep following it, of course. But if you remember, um, you were you were generous in calling it a, um, a broader injunction. It was sort of the Godzilla of injunctions uh, early on. So you had a district court stay or a district court injunction against a host of entities and officials related to alleged coercion in censoring social media posts. So it was this giant, 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 giant injunction. Goes to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit opinion is interesting because it does 
identify some things using the NRA versus Volo test that we've talked about before, a second circuit test on what's coercion versus convincing. And, but it, it was a kind of a, um, a stinging opinion towards some of the conduct from the Biden administration, but really a pretty narrow injunction. It went from the Godzilla injunctions narrowed down to something really pretty, pretty small. And which is, um, first, the social, first, the Biden administration may not coerce social media platforms to make content moderation decisions. And second, they may not meaningfully control social media platforms, content moderation efforts. Um, so that goes to SCOTUS. And that is what has stayed here, not the Godzilla injunction. The Godzilla injunction was already really pared down, which led to one of these funny Twitter moments where by all measures, the district court was pretty substantially rebuked. I mean, when you narrow an injunction that much, it's pretty substantially rebuked. But all the people who want more government control of social media were like high-fiving each other that see the Fifth Circuit saw what we saw. Well, it was a mix. It was a mix. The Fifth Circuit saw some of it and not a lot of it. And then in reading the dissent from Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas here, Sarah, I I got to say they they have a point, okay? Yeah. So. Here's the point that they have. And the point is this. So remember, the two elements here of the injunction that has been stayed. So this is an injunction that has been set aside is you cannot coerce and you cannot, you, you cannot meaningfully control. You cannot coerce social media platforms to make content moderation decisions and you cannot meaningfully, meaningfully control social media platforms. Well, that's just a statement of the law, pretty much. Yeah, that's kind of the law, right? I mean, but the problem is no one really understands the parameters of what that means. Yeah, kind of yeah. loosey goosey words. That's the whole suit. Like the government says we yeah. weren't coercing or meaningfully controlling, and the states are like, yes, you were. <laughs> so yeah. the injunction saying don't do the thing that you say you weren't doing that the other side says you were doing, like that's the debate. So I, I think I see why. Why we at why we're at where we're at, but of course there's two other reasons why the Supreme Court stayed the injunction. One, I don't think it actually gave um, meaningful guidance to the government on yes, what they could or couldn't. That's do. the weakness. Yep. Two, and we've talked about this a lot. Uh, there's a majority of justices on the court that are very hesitant to dive into emergency docket land, and so the question is always what is the status quo that we're preserving? Right, right, right. That's hard when you're talking about a new government regulation or new government policy. Here, not so much. The status quo is clearly government continue doing what you're doing will decide whether what you're doing is a problem. Right. Um, so I think the status quo is much easier to ascertain in this situation. Yes, yes, I agree with you. I, You know, it was interesting because when I saw that, critique from Alito Gorsuch Thomas, and it's they're kind of like, wait, what? It says don't coerce. It says don't meaningfully control. And is that's that would be that we know that that's already the law, but you're right. Um, there's another couple of, there's another element here which could play into this, which is, and again, we're kind of at a shot in the dark. One is, well, we have not really defined what coerce and control is. It's sort of, you know, uh, begs the question in a way. Uh, then another one is it's possible that at least some elements of the majority looked at the conduct as articulated in the cert petition and said, mm, if that's what they're saying is coercing and controlling, that's not coercing and controlling. And so that's a possibility as well. We just don't know because there's no opinion out there. So I thought either the coerce and control language is just too broad, doesn't give meaningful guidance. Or, hey, they want to hear this in regular course of business, and as you were saying, status quo. Or they read the court papers and said, this isn't coercing and controlling. It's the merits, yeah. Or at least a, a, a quick look at the merits. A quick look at the merits. And in truth, it's all three. Of course it's all three. Of course, there's some potpourri here. It's a soup, and there's a lot of ingredients in the soup um, look, I, 
anytime this sort of thing happens, it's good news for the side that wins the injunction. This is the criticism of the emergency docket is that they are in a sense deciding cases by deciding the injunction side. I don't think that's quite true here. Again, they granted cert, um, but I'd certainly rather be the Biden administration today heading into the Supreme Court uh, than the states. That being said, you know, and we haven't done a full dive through the whole record, but, you know, I've read the appellate briefs and the opinion, and there was some stuff that I thought specifically from the digital director in the Biden administration. And I think I mentioned this before where, you know, he's not a lawyer, he's a comms guy and he's shooting off these emails to like flex basically. And like, you know, push the social media companies to take down content he doesn't like. And if you're in the white house counsel's office, I'm sure you're looking at those going, are you serious right now? Oh God, come on, dude. He, you know, the, he's doing the very thing you're not supposed to do, which is, do this or I'm going to have to talk to people about, you know, punishments. Yeah. Oh, you know, the, the best defense that they would have and it of that language, because we, we walked through some of that language before. And I was, you know, my thought was if this doesn't cross the NRA V Volo threshold, which is what they were applying. I don't know what, you know, it's about as demanding and imprecatory as you could have now. But the, I guess the best defense, and I'm not sure how good of a defense this is, Sarah, is that those entities and individuals who had actual enforcement authority were quite careful in their language. And this dude, who's just some dude in the executive branch who has zero enforcement authority. He's like the social media guy, basically. Right. He has no cops he can call. I mean, like at his beck and call, he has nothing. He's just a dude yelling. Um, the best, the best defense to that is, well, he's just a dude yelling. He has no authority to back it up whatsoever. Now, the answer to that is, um, well, he's in the Biden administration. He's a senior staffer in the White House. He's a senior staffer in the White House. It's not that hard for him to pick up the phone, right? And the social media companies don't know. Yeah, they they don't know if you know he's got a direct channel to FBI, whoever, and so. Yeah, it, it's hard for me to imagine. Let me put it this way. If some of his ranting is not considered coercion, then the definition of coercion, we're, we're kind of in a new, we're going to be kind of in a new frontier. So there's the definition of coercion. Like does, you know, if you're saying as the, again, when I say social media guy, I mean the guy who's like, you know, approving social media posts and stuff like that. Right. Um, and, and rapid response type stuff within the administration. Um, you know, if the question is one, him saying, take this down or else I'm going to go figure out what we're going to do about it. Is that coercion? David, right. to your point, how is it not? Right. Two, um, there's also, I think, an argument that I find the most unpersuasive, but it's interesting, which is, okay, but, the executive branch has 400 million ways in which it can coerce people. Does it need to be connected? I.e. Um, take down the social media post or I send the FBI for instance, mm-hmm. or can it be take down the social media post or I'm going to have someone call members of Congress to look into legislation about 302 protections that may or may not go anywhere, but it's going to cause you a huge hassle and make you spend some money on lobbyists. Is that coercion? Yeah, I don't think that's coercion. Like, do this, take this down, or I'm going to start some sort of legislative process that depends on 15,000 contingent actors and blah, blah, blah. No, I don't. See, I don't, I don't know. That's funny. So I found that, um, you find that actually to be a pretty persuasive argument that it's mm-hmm. not coercion. I actually find that to be one of the weakest arguments because um, it worked. Like, doesn't it matter that that type of coercion actually worked? The the stat that they had, and again, like we can't, like we're taking it in the light sort of most yeah, favorable, yeah. Um, was that they took down about 50% of the posts that this dude asked them to take down. On the one hand, maybe that's a low number. Like if the coercion were really effective, you would expect it to be, 80 or 90 or 100 if it was really coercive, like gun to your head coercive, it should be 100. On the other hand, 50% is pretty high. 
And maybe they had just determined that 50% was about what would keep them away from that Placating. regulatory coercion. That again, it's not the FBI is going to knock on Twitter's headquarters, but it's that regulatory process, that legislative process, um, you know, maybe threats of an antitrust investigation. You don't really think they're going to do it, but if you don't take down some of them, they're going to do it. Like, where's that line? Not on the front end of what constitutes coercion in the language, but the evidence that it actually was coercive. And the other complicator here, though, and now, again, this is a huge record, so I cannot represent that every complaint followed this pattern. But as a general matter, the the government's defense to some of its conduct has been, actually, what we were doing are highlighting posts that already violated terms of service. And we were doing what anybody can do, which is report violations of terms of service. Now, they did have a special channel, say, that you and I, or, you know, uh, you and I don't typically, say, email senior executives and say, can you take this down? But they're... Yeah, though that being said, campaigns, like when I was on a campaign, I absolutely had that. Right. Yeah. So a lot of people have a line into these social media companies and they would say, we have identified a violation of your terms of service and we're demanding that you take it down in accordance with your terms of service. And that, under that circumstances, it'd be interesting to know sort of what is the ratio if uh, a political campaign calls in, if anybody else calls in and identifies a violation of the terms of service, what ratio, what percentage of takedowns exists? And so, you know, part of the defense, again, against the Biden administration has always been, well, these are extremely sophisticated corporate entities represented by some of the most capable counsel. And they have, all they did is weighed these complaints the way they would weigh any complaint. And some of the posts did, in fact, violate the terms of service. And we took those down. And the ones that did not violate the terms of service, we left up. Um, so there's a lot of factual questions here, but the language from this Biden social media guy, let me put it this way. If he was actually clothed with regulatory authority um, over the social media companies, like actual regulatory authority, then it seems to me it's open and shut. It's just a slam dunk. He's telling them to do stuff. If he's just sort of like, chief job owner of the Biden administration with no regulatory authority, that makes it a little bit different. But yeah, it this case is really going to depend on the details in a way that's going to make a lot of people unhappy online because they're going to want to end up with something that says whatever the government says, social media companies um, have the ability to, to completely... Um, you know, whatever social media companies say, the government has the ability to completely, uh, uh, or whatever the government says, social media companies have the ability to completely disregard in theory. So therefore there's no coercion, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're looking for the big sweeping ruling here and it's really going to depend on the facts. And it's really, I think, largely going to come down to this guy. <laughs> He's going to be the center of it and what kind of authority he had and what kind of authority that would somebody reasonably perceive that he had. By the way, you can tell that he came from campaign world because that's exactly how <laughs> campaign people have to sort of treat reporters or social media executives or whatever, trying to like make their case. Um, I, I felt like I recognized those emails. Okay. There's one last part of this uh, stay and dissent that we need to talk about, David. It's the Alito Thomas Gorsuch part of it. Yes. <laughs> I was leaving that for you, Sarah. Uh, right. So this is the three-three-three court argument, and you've got the three justices lining up behind this dissent from the stay. What does it tell us about the tech term, David? Because remember, we've got this case. We've got the can you block people on social media if you have a government account uh, combined cases, and then you've got the Florida and Texas social media bill cases disclosure. Husband of the pod represents in the Texas case against Texas. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, we said last time was a tech term. And then with one and sentence, we Elena, Kagan, <laughs> Elena Kagan wiped that all out. She it was the, what was the quote? We're not exactly the nine best experts. In the internet. But these are 
cleaner cases that really you don't necessarily have to be an expert on the internet to decide. Um, and so there's a couple of things. One, I think we're seeing, because if you remember, if you go back to the original Net Choice Fifth Circuit um, injunction, that was 5-4, remember? Um, and Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito were in the minority, unless I'm completely um, blacking out on that one as well. So that was 5-4. And Kagan, I believe, joined them, which we talked a lot about at the time and thought it might have been more related to some emergency or emergency emergency docket disagreements. Um, but that was interesting where we saw Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. We've seen Thomas make noise in other circumstances about extending more government control into content moderation. Um, yeah, Sarah, this does look like one of those cases where your 333 formulation is going to spring to life. So we'll see. We'll see. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, Aura. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on your childhood memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. And to be clear, every mom in my life has this frame. Every mom I've ever heard of has this frame. This is my go-to gift. My parents love it. I upload photos all the time. I'm just like bored watching TV at the end of the night. I'll hop on the app and put up the photos from the day. It's really easy. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code advisory at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, next up, we've got the plea deal from two defendants in that Georgia election fraud case. Now, there's so many different ways to look at these plea deals, David. It's an yeah. ink blot test. <laughs> it's an ink blot test. So I want to just throw out a few before it feels like I'm characterizing it myself. Yeah. One version, OMG, two people in the Georgia case pled out. On the other hand, um, after being charged with a zillion felonies, they pled out to minor misdemeanors, no jail time, um, they have to write an apology letter <laughs> as one person, uh, I think it was a comedian online said, um, all this does is convince me that Sidney Powell is the best lawyer ever. <laughs> she got charged with felonies and all she has to do is write an apology letter. <laughs> what a great negotiator. Yeah. Um, okay. So there's another version where they've agreed to testify against Trump and other defendants. So oh boy, he's in trouble and like, this is what you get. Um, and on the other hand, what does this mean for attorney-client privilege? So like, is it on the <laughs> client to know that the legal advice that they're getting is going to lead later on to being found that your lawyer and you broke the law? Um, you know, I thought that David Latt's write-up in original jurisdiction was so great on this because I thought he was really able to present some of the complicated ways that you might react to this plea deal. So anyway, David, it's Sidney Powell. It's Kenneth Cheesebro. There's some debate still on how you pronounce his name, but Cheesebro is the most fun way to pronounce it. Yeah, Being yeah. married to someone from Wisconsin, it also just feels like if you're going to have to you know, go on one side or the other, you should go with Cheesebro. Um, what do you make of it? Yeah. Okay. So the other, the other aspect of the attorney client privilege is so Sidney Powell pleads guilty 
And then Trump comes out and says, not my attorney. So since the privilege belongs to the client and the alleged client says, not my attorney, that's going to have some interesting ramifications. It so, wouldn't matter anyway, though, because at the point that you've that the lawyer has pled guilty to a crime, it basically vitiates attorney-client privilege, which is part of the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how are you supposed to know that the advice the attorney is giving you is criminal and therefore is no longer privileged? Right. Isn't that the whole point of having an attorney? And is this, you know, a Trump, you know, we've talked about Trump law, that like when Trump's name is involved, people just sort of forget what their principles of law are because Trump just overwhelms the conversation. Is this an example of that? Should we be happy or sad about this? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of, if, if you rely, if you believe Trump who would say, I was just relying on the advice of counsel. In other words, I came, I was an open book and I had one lawyer in my ear named Bill Barr or the White House Counsel's Office and I had another lawyer in my ear named Sidney Powell or Kenneth Cheesebro. And who am I? Who am I to decide between these two? I am I am but a caveman president. <laughs> good, good reference. Great reference. <laughs> Thank you. And cannot distinguish between these two things. Or is he a criminal mastermind who's like, I'm stealing this freaking election. I'm claiming fraud and Bill Barr's not coming along with me. But you know who is? Sidney Powell. Let's saddle up and ride into the criminal sunset. And so I do think that there is, a, you know, the theory of the case is not that Trump walked in, sought the advice of counsel and pursued one and not the other. The theory of the case is from before the election, Trump was planning to claim fraud no matter what. That's the theory of the case. But I'm more interested in the, what does this mean about the strength of the prosecution's case theorizing that's been going around out there that's related to, on the one hand, again, Sarah, as you're saying, it's like this binary. The people who are skeptical about Trump's case say, well, all these felony charges lobbed in their direction and a letter of apology, probation, What's going on here? This is not a strong case. And then the people who think she's got him now are like, okay, the dominoes are falling. And let me just correct one thing. I said that they both pled to misdemeanors instead of felony. Powell pleaded to six misdemeanor counts of conspiracy to interfere with the performance of election duties. Cheesebro pled to one felony count of conspiracy. However, both were sentenced to only probation, no jail right. time, a few thousand dollars in restitution, write apology letters to the state of Georgia and testify against co-defendants. Um, oh, and I found the, the late, the daily show transcript thing. Here's the, just a letter. This woman actively tried to steal an election. The least she could do is apologize door to door, like a sex offender. Sydney Powell <laughs> sounds like a pretty great lawyer, to be honest. She got treason down to an apology letter. That's an amazing negotiation. Is she still practicing? Cause I might want to hire her. <laughs> And did you see a picture of her was posted uh, after the plea wearing a Q jacket? Oh, God. Yeah, I know. But David, like, I think that is the question because I, we've talked obviously at length about the relative strength of the Georgia case. I think it's overbroad. I think it's sort of a, a, you know, Jackson Pollock artwork of an indictment. It's just sort of a bunch of stuff. It's really hard to tell who's even charged with what and what actions. And elements are being fit into what charges. Um, and I, you look at these plea deals and I think you can look at that either way. Like, yeah, this is proof that it was an incredibly weak indictment because you were, you were that quick to accept misdemeanor apology letter. And on the other hand, you can say they were that quick to accept a plea deal and testify. So what does it mean for Trump or other defendants? Not much to me right now that we've learned, frankly. No. And now I can imagine, let me sort of put on on my head a prosecutor's hat who would defend this and say, okay, this is a prosecutor who has the jigsaw puzzle approach to this. No, there's a version where this is the strong case and the version where it's a weak oh, case. Yeah. That's the problem. What, what they're saying, what that prosecutor would say sir, is both of you are way over reading into the fact that there's no jail time. Look, if you look at mafia prosecutions, you're going to see all kinds of foot soldiers 
who've done some pretty awful stuff getting some really, really, really sweetheart deals. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the prosecutor, it's not a successful prosecution to them if they put Jimmy the Butcher in jail for 75 years and five layers up the chain, John Gotti walks. Because Sidney Powell, Kenneth Cheesebro, whoever else might plead, Jenna Ellis, who knows? I don't know if she will or won't, but whoever else, they're the foot soldiers. They're the, they're the minions. They're the pawns. And you're get, we're going to sacrifice our ability to heavily prosecute a pawn to head for the king. And so this is normal stuff. This is normal stuff. But the other counter is, well, even pawns get like actually sacrificed. I mean, like there's no, what there's, this is nothing. This is, a little bit more than reckless driving <laughs> you know, for some really consequential stuff. In reckless driving, you lose your license. As of that's not part of the plea deal, for instance, mm-hmm. that Sidney Powell gets disbarred. Now, she may well get disbarred because she just pled to six misdemeanors, um, but it wasn't even part of the plea deal. I, look, if you, there's a lot we don't know about why they accepted the plea deal, why they offered the plea deal, why either side thought this was a good deal. I don't think it changes my opinion that I think this is not that strong a case. I don't mean it's like the New York case where I was like, oh, this is incredibly weak. The New York case is incredibly weak to me because they don't have the law on their side, let alone the facts. Um, Here, we've talked about it before. The Georgia law actually probably is on their side. Oh, yeah. Better than any of the other cases other than the documents case. But if you were going after Trump and you're indicting 19 people and it's all kind of a mess. Um, The other issue here is like, okay, everyone's like making a big deal out of the fact that you're getting their testimony. What do you think they know that hasn't already been made public? That's a great point. I mean, like so many other things in the Trump era, everything bad was happening right in front of our eyes. It reminds me very much of... When I try to explain who I think Trump is, you know, because there's the version where Trump's uh, a total moron and Trump's an evil genius. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, those exist together, which doesn't make any sense. You can't be both. Right. Like Biden doddering fool crim- slash criminal mastermind. That's right. It's they're the exact same problem is that people want to have both beliefs because then you can explain everything, but it doesn't make sense. Uh, so after the Charlottesville um, murder where a white supremacist mowed down Heather Heyer with his car. Uh, I was at a meeting at the White House in the residence with Donald Trump and just a handful of other people. And maybe I think there were six of us in the room. I won't discuss what was said in that meeting, <laughs> but I'll tell you that I went back to my office very disturbed and immediately went to someone else who was a senior DOJ person to tell him what the president had said and what responsibility, if any, I had at that point. And then the president went out publicly and said there were good people on both sides. And I went back to that person and said, never mind. Right. I'm good now. <laughs> because now the American people can make that decision. So right. when it comes to this case, what things do you think he was telling Sidney Powell or cheese bro, that he wasn't saying publicly on Twitter. Yeah, I that, that is the question that immediately came to my mind when everyone was celebrating, oh, he's cooperating, he's cooperating. Like he said all, he said everything. He just, right, he just tweeted it out. You know, that was the old journalist, journalists in 2017 and 2018 would say, I've been working on a story for three months and he just tweeted it out. You know, yep. he would, and so, Here's the only thing, Sarah, and this is, remember how much of this depends on the intent element, where one of his defenses is, uh, I, since I believed I, you know, won Georgia. I believed I won Wisconsin. And if they have additional light to shed on that, either from the standpoint of, I told him he didn't. We told him he didn't, but he was the client and we did what the client asked us to do. If they can shed light on something like that, I could see some value add. But this is, again, one of those situations where, and it's a—it's so fascinating to have watched this unfold. 
because he would say out loud things and, and, and describe that he was doing things that were so blatantly terrible that if you had discovered them through digging through three or four months of investigation, um, you would be like, aha, we caught you now. But when he just says it, there's this weird disconnect where people can't quite grasp that he just said that he, what he said was bad and that just in what his confession was really bad. It's almost as if you, because it was just blurted out, people discounted it. Well, it can't be that bad. He just blurted it out. And the way I used the, the analogy I used in first impeachment was what if instead of, um, Ken Starr having to fight and clat and scratch and claw to get the blue dress. Bill Clinton just walked into a press conference with the blue dress. That was kind of the way Trump would do things. And it had an interesting sort of psychological effect on the public in both directions, like with one side jumping up and down saying, he just confessed to doing horrible things. And the other side being like, look how authentic and transparent he is. <laughs> it's, it, it oh, this can be true. Crazy making. It yeah. is authentic and transparent. <laughs> it is true. It's absolutely true. I wouldn't dispute that. By the way, so I was using uh, David Latt's original jurisdiction newsletter to get that Daily Show transcript. And I remembered there was, we had talked about the interview that Justice Amy Coney Barrett gave uh, in our episode at UVA. And David, you had talked specifically about the the fire gets put on the page, but it is not expressed yeah. in interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Um, but there were other parts that we failed to quote, and I just felt like they needed some quotes here. Yeah. <laughs> and this was the best. Um, uh, one morning, her 11-year-old son, Benjamin, who has Down syndrome, asked to listen to the 2000 hit song, Who Let the Dogs Out, while waiting for the school bus. Hours later, Justice Barrett described walking into the grandeur of the Supreme Court, past the portraits of justices who have preceded her, these dignified men, with her son's choice of song stuck in her head. (laughs) 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 Oh, I love it so much. It's fantastic. But there there were a few other more serious parts of this that I thought were interesting. One, one of the quotes she gave was, I don't think that my perspective or that anybody's perspective is different just by virtue of being a woman. So I think that's really an interesting phrasing because Mm. I think in context she meant my view of the law or my application of the law to the facts, you know, like being a judge. But what she actually said was perspective. But of course your perspective is different by virtue of being a mother or a woman or being left-handed, like whatever it may be. Like you have different life experiences because of your differences. So you have a different perspective. Um, so I, I wondered if that was sort of an interesting slip up. I wonder if like I, I pushed her on the perspective question, if she would say like, no, 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 like I'm at perspective in applying the law or something. Yeah, that's how I would have to interpret that. Because um, I have no perspective on carrying a child. <laughs> well, and it's become this conservative shibboleth for particularly women of a certain generation, of which I include myself. I'm not calling uh, Justice Barrett old. I want to be very clear about that. I'm in fact referring to us being in the same generation, (laughs) um, flattering myself perhaps. Uh, That if you grew up in sort of conservative world as a woman, you were supposed to say that sort of thing because it's part of affirmative action and all these other conversations where, I don't know, it was just what we were all supposed to say. But I've been really revisiting that, and I think it's over-applied and not true in a lot of cases, that yes, I think you should apply the law without regard to saying, well, I'm a woman, so I vote for the woman. Like, obviously, there's a difference between that and saying, yeah, my perspective on what they're describing is different because I've experienced that thing. Like, let's just use childbirth because it's the easiest. I have experienced childbirth, and you, David, have not. So yeah, I'm going to be like, oh, well, actually, like this, this, and this. Um, so I, I wish that conservative women, I think, would revisit that line because it's so easy to give. You've been so trained to give it. But like, it's not totally true all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and then, you know, of course, when it comes to trans issues, some of the same people would say, there's huge, massive differences in yes. 
Yeah, I think that's what made me revisit it is this, like, it can't, you can't have that both ways either. It can't be that like, oh no, no difference between me and a man as a judge or anything else. But also there's a huge difference between me and a man as a judge because that's why a trans woman isn't the same as me. Like, nope, that one of those two is not quite right. Right, right. It's, yeah, it's very, so much of our, it is really interesting how so much of our kind of common sense gets completely blown up when it's filtered through politics. Like we just, you cannot apply any kind of common sense analysis to anything because one of the first things that is asked when you start internally, when you're a partisan is, well, if I apply this particular filter, will it give ammunition to the other side? In this conversation, it is hard because what ends up happening, the conversation that the reason the conservative women are sort of pick up this line along the way makes perfect sense because um, of, again, I was sort of using affirmative action and you think higher education or admissions and like, that's not quite what I mean. I mean, more like quota system and jobs of, right. well, we need to have two women on this corporate board. So even though they're not qualified, let's go find them. And conservative people of all stripes would be like, no, because all you're doing is diminishing the women who you do put on the board. Well, and that was because of their revert, their, their common sense filter got distorted because they have, here's a common sense, yes. Yeah, women, because of the different life experiences that are inherent in being a woman, have a different perspective. That was, okay, that's a common sense statement. Here's where it gets distorted. And that perspective, to be authentically female, is going to be extremely progressive. I get that all the time when I was working on Carly Fiorina's campaign. She's not the right kind of woman, by which they mean like, no, no, right. no, we meant a woman who th thinks all the things we think. <laughs> yeah. When you see the same thing in race, where people start making, okay, if you're if you are a um, a black American, you're going to experience things. Chances are very good that you're going to experience things that I never experience. That is a common sense statement. I think it's just an empirically true statement. But then here's where it gets ideologically distorted, when then people will say, and therefore the authentic expression of that difference is dot, 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 and often usually filtered through progressive politics, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that, it's that next move that's the one that is, you know, in many ways so false. It's that, okay, yeah, there are going to be different perspectives. I, I remember reading the original Kimberly Crenshaw intersectionality Law Review article that was written, I believe, in 89, and I read it in 91, and I was like, oh, it makes a lot of sense, for example, that the law shouldn't, if you're a black woman, the law shouldn't evaluate your claim on race vis-a-vis -vis how black men experience that workplace. And it shouldn't evaluate your gender-based or sex-based discrimination claim on the basis of how white women experience that workplace, that maybe there is something about being a black woman that is distinctive. That was all, you know, common sense where a lot of this began to go off the rails was, and therefore here is what that perspective should be if it's going to be authentic. And what does representation mean? How much should it be required? Is, do we need that perspective, regardless of what it is, say in two spots on every corporate board? You know, I'm using that as, a, as an example of, you know, or half of our associates or, a, you know, at least one quarter of all of our judicial nominees must be women. A conservative would say, no, that's just a quota system. You're not even asking what that perspective is. You're just assuming there is some perspective. Um, but at the same time, I think you would say that it would be strange, for instance, if none of your judicial nominees were women and you tried to argue, they're like, well, I just picked the most qualified person for the job. Like, well, you're missing a perspective here, certainly, in your judicial nominations overall. Um, and also at some point, like I find that hard to believe that the most qualified people were exclusively men. And so it's finding that balance. And, you know, the example that you always hear is, well, no, if two people are equally qualified, you should pick the one that adds that representational diversity or perspective. Two people are rarely going to have, never going to have the exact same resume in all respects, except for their race or their gender or something else. And so like, that's not a realistic conversation to have. Have the realistic conversation when you're talking about this. 
How important is representation? How important is that perspective? Doesn't matter what that perspective is. Anyway, that was digging in way too much into what Justice Barrett, I think, even meant, let alone no, what she said. I think it's a super valuable com- conversation because what ideology is doing to us right now in many ways, or par- and it's not even ideology, it's partisan affiliation. <laughs> Because the the ideologies we're finding out are being are pretty malleable. It's the partisan what the partisan affiliation is doing to us right now is literally stripping from us our reason and in 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 replacing our independent reason and replacing it with a cold calculus that says I cannot give any ammunition to the other side. I have to be. It is a sign of weakness or injustice even for me to accommodate any sort of point of view outside my own and or outside my tribes. And that le- it's crazy making after a while. It's just crazy making. Unless you think that this is only uh, interesting if you want to dig into this very small thing that Justice Barrett said. Of course, there are several lawsuits defending, sorry, several law firms defending lawsuits across the country Related, at least in part, to this exact question post the Harvard Affirmative Action case. They have uh, summer associate positions or scholarships or fellowships that were reserved for people of certain groups, be it racial groups or sexual orientation or whatever else, um, and they've been sued for that. Now, a few of the law firms have said, we're just going to have the same fellowship now we're going to make it clear that it's not obviously violating the law, even <laughs> right. though I think it's probably also fair to say that they're going to continue doing exactly what they were doing. Yeah. Um, interestingly, one of those law firms put out a statement saying that they were totally vindicated with their fellowship <laughs> and the people <laughs> suing them put out a statement saying they were totally vindicated that the fellowship <laughs> was unlawful before. Uh, so, Yeah. But, you know, in this circumstance, you know, when you're talking about the, you know, diversity efforts in, in higher education or diversity efforts in law firms or wherever, the law puts its thumb on the scales here. We're, we've made a choice. We're going to say that you can, you can include and consider an awful lot of factors when you're deciding who to hire and who to fire and who to grant a fellowship. But you know what cannot be? one of those factors, or at least just, uh, independently of its own, either as a plus or a minus race. And yet law firms were just law firms, like law firms while yeah. giving advice to clients on what was legal and not lawful. were doing exactly that. Yes. Yes. Which I know, I know. And you know, the brazenness of it was, was oh, so amazing. It gets to this problem, David, to, that you've highlighted in a totally different part of our world, which is experts that reporters rely on in, in this context, um, the law of armed conflict, right? They, they find people who say something about how they wish the law were and they tell it to a reporter as if it's what the law is. Yeah. Um, that's feels like what I would be concerned as, as a client getting advice from some of these law firms that have these fellowships and you're asking that law firm for advice on how you can conform your corporation to the law while, for instance, hiring a diverse board? Are they telling me what the law is? Or are they telling me what they wish it were because they have this program that's blatantly unlawful? Well, and guess what? This circles back to remember when we talked about the mandatory religious liberty training? Mm, that was yes. Two, and, and I had pointed out how there was a case that I fought years ago where there was a settlement where the mandatory training was going to be administered by the ACLU. And the objection was, this isn't training, this is advocacy. They're, they're going to be educated in what the, what the ACLU wants the law or wants their conduct to be, not what the law requires. And then you fast forward 20 years almost, Sarah, to, and it's funny how things are never fixed. Um, you know, who's up, who's down changes quite a bit over the course of two decades. You have a federal judge saying ADF should conduct religious liberty training. Well, you and I both know there's some incredible ADF attorneys who are some of the foremost experts in this field, you know, anywhere in the nation who win a lot of cases at the Supreme Court. But ADF is an, is, has, is an organization 
with a goal, with an objective, with a series of legal agendas. And sure, some of those guys might be able to strip all of that off and just go, just the facts, ma'am, just the law, ma'am, and teach it straight. But that is not, that would not be, if you were a journalist and you were saying, hey, here's your assignment. Hey, your assignment is to learn everything you can learn from about religious liberty. And the only person who calls from ADF, well, you're going to learn a lot. But one of the things that you may not learn at all is that much about the merits of the contrary view. You might learn about how to rebut the contrary view, but you're not going to learn as much about the merits of the contrary view. And again, in Gaza, it's the same thing. If you're calling an international, an NGO that is a humanitarian NGO, they're going to be emphasizing limitations on military conduct. If you're going to be talking to an actual practitioner of the law of armed conflict, they're going to hit on, get you on both sides. They're going to say, here's what's enabling and here's what's limiting about the law of armed conflict. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, well, David, let's circle back to Missouri real quick because there was another gun lawsuit. <laughs> Always gun lawsuits. Yeah, this is a case, and we're not going to spend much time on this at all, um, but because the Supreme Court didn't really change the status quo, uh, unlike the way in which the Supreme Court changed the status quo in the uh, tech censorship case. Uh, but Or they didn't change the status quo. Well, they stayed the injunction. Yeah, yeah. I was making a joke about how we were saying that it's all about oh, whether, oh, how you see the status quo. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, David. I know. I'm sorry. I'm, uh, it's, it's crack of dawn Monday morning. I'm, uh-huh. I'm slow. Yeah. Um, okay, so... On Friday, the Supreme Court kept on hold, to no one's surprise, a Missouri law that bars police from enforcing federal gun laws, rejecting an emergency appeal from the state. Now, this is kind of a, uh, anti- this is a, an interesting case because it, it will be, it's a commandeering, it sounds sort of in the commandeering range where the law imposes a fine of $50,000 on an officer who knowingly enforces federal gun laws that don't match up with state restrictions. Um, (laughs) Interesting. So essentially what Missouri is saying is if you're a state official and federal gun laws are beyond our state restrictions and you're a state official and you're involved in enforcing with knowledge in any way these federal gun laws, you can be punished. Um, Now, this is an area of law that is... I'm not going to say up in the air, but essentially the broad the broad rule is that, look, of course, federal law preempts state law. Federal law is supreme over state law when federal law is constitutional. At the same time, there's a limit to how much the federal government can require state officials to enforce federal law. So how much can a... Um, the federal government commandeer state officials to enforce federal law. But conversely, how much can states prohibit state officials from enforcing federal law? So to what extent can you commandeer? To what extent can you prohibit? Uh, and that's kind of the wh- where these cases end up. So that, that the Missouri law is kept on hold. Justice Thomas would have granted a stay. Um, what is it you say about Thomas? The cheese stands alone with, with Thomas many times. So not much to say about that. I'm not super surprised by that outcome. Um, 
because it it really it seems to be less of an anti-commandeering and more of a prohibition. Um, but we'll see how it turns out ultimately. Well, we've got one other gun case we can talk about, which is the ghost gun case that keeps popping up and being sent back down. So uh, this is a Biden regulation, Biden administration regulation that would bar ghost guns from being sold without following the normal regulations that apply to regular guns. You know, right now, if you buy just all the parts to a gun and assemble it yourself, congrats, you've got a gun that's unregistered. This would just say like, no, those have to be registered too. Uh, the A district judge in Texas issued a nationwide injunction prohibiting enforcement of that regulation from going into effect. The Supreme Court gnaw-dogged that. Then that district judge issued another injunction, but only as applied to two of the manufacturers who were actually party to the case. So it went back up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court gnaw-dogged that one too. <laughs> no noted dissents. So this actually, I think, is more about the Fifth Circuit conversation that we had over at UVA, David, than it is about even, um, you know, gun regulations or anything like that, because this hasn't come up on the merits yet. It is only, if anything, you could say it's a conversation more about nationwide injunctions or injunctive relief differently. Um, but those Fifth Circuit panels had affirmed the district judge both times uh, and both times rebuked by the Supreme Court. It's interesting watching all of this unfold because the more we watch the court in operation, um, the more convinced I am that this is going to ultimately be a far less radical court than a lot of people believe. Um, hoped or feared. Yep. Hoped, hoped or, or feared. feared. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Last thing for the next episode, I was thinking we could do a mailbag episode. So if you are a member of the dispatch, you can hop in the comment section and send us your questions that you want us to answer on the next episode. If you're not a member of the dispatch, I think it's like 10 bucks a month. So for $10, you can send us your question. And by the way, if you join, just ask us a question, note that in your question. We'll reward that behavior. Thank you for your support in advance. And I thought I would inspire people, David, with this future mailbag episode and hopping in the comment section to ask questions by asking you one question from the comment section of the last episode. <laughs> gotcha. Which is, you've railed against the Smith standard that you want that replaced. What do you want to replace it with? And do explain the Smith case. Yeah, so Employment Division v. Smith. This is the case that if we had sound effects in in the AO podcast, you know how every time uh, Woodrow Wilson's name is mentioned on the remnant, you hear the Urukai theme from the Two Towers. This is my Urukai theme song. Is the is, every time Employment Division v. Smith is mentioned, we should hear the Urukai theme or something even more sinister. But this is the Scalia opinion that said a free exercise claim is going to fail whenever it confronts a general law of neutral, a neutral law of general applicability. So if the law is not targeted at um, religion, it's just a, it's a generally applicable law, not targeted at religion, then your free exercise claim is going to fail. And it came up in the context of an unemployment charge or an unemployment claim related to someone fired for smoking peyote. And the uh, neutral law of general applicability was a law prohibiting use of hallucinogens and other kinds of drugs, and so therefore he failed. And to this day, Sarah, I don't think we would have had Employment Division v. Smith if it came up in any other context but the drug war. Oh, there's plenty of people who say this was Scalia's religious side of his brain at war with the anti-drug side of his brain. Uh, exactly. Mind you, the person claimed he had smoked the peyote as part of a religious ceremony yes, and then right. failed the drug test. So it actually was drug laws coming up against free exercise laws. Exactly. And we've seen the drug law distortion again and again and again. I mean, we've seen it in free speech, the bong hits for Jesus case, Morse free Frederick. Like, I but think it's that generational. We haven't seen these younger judges who are part of, again, our generation actually make those decisions. It was this older generation that decided all those cases. I think it's a place where the court will no longer really have that drug distortion. I, I agree. Forward. I think maybe it's because our generation all inhaled and I didn't. I, I'm, I didn't either. 
And I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, wait a second. David said that and then like backed off real quick. Well, I was speaking generally, but. Uh So you've never smoked pot? No. You've never done a, any, any marijuana in your system. I guess I should be more, more generalized because now people are going to be like, what about gummies? I've never, I've never done any of that stuff. Have you smoked a cigarette? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Have you smoked a cigar? Uh, many, many, many. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Now we've, we've laid the, the outline there. So anyway, the, 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 I was just going to focus in on the fact that you said, um, our generation. I know I'm being very generous today. Okay. <laughs> Cause that to me was, I'm in the, a generous mood. That was the headline, but no. So the, um, so in this case, it was an extreme case that came out under unusual circumstances, highly specific circumstances, I should say and overturned a standard that was actually working, uh, which was a, there was strict scrutiny applied when you made, when you made a colorable claim that your free exercise rights were being substantially burdened, then strict scrutiny applied. Now, this was the op, this was the, 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 um, construct created when the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed in the hopes of overturning Employment Division v. Smith. Okay, and so when you talk about Employment Division v. Smith, uh, and it was immediately followed by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which tried to bring us back to status quo ante. And it did at the federal level, it was ultimately over or struck down in its applicability to the state and local level. But then you had RELUPA, which was passed, Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, which brought some of that into play when it came to land use, zoning, etc., and the federal government functions perfectly well with RIFRA hovering over it. Land use restrictions function perfectly well with ARLUPA hung, uh, hovering over it. I don't see a problem with going back to the status quo pre-Smith, Sarah. That's, my view is the status quo pre-Smith. Now, there are some details about that that we could dive into. We don't have a lot of time because we have a hard out. And I have to tell you how I saved the house. <gasps> how do you save the house? Yeah, so this is a crazy story, Sarah. I'm fulfilling a public service for people, for listeners. So it's Saturday night. I just got through running. I take a shower. That was a humble brag there, just so listeners know. <laughs> just stay in fit, Sarah. Just stay uh-huh. in fit. Yep. Take a shower. I finish the shower, and it sounds like somebody's taking a shower in the house. And it sounds like it's coming from the part of the house that no one's living in, the apartment where Camille and Jared and the grandbabies were living for a year and a half and before they went to Chicago. But nobody's up there. So I thought, did a pipe break in the middle of the fall up in the apartment? It, did somebody sneak up into the apartment and start showering? So I go up there, nothing's going on. And I come back down, I still hear the sound of like somebody showering. And so Naomi's, there's three of us in the house and nobody's taking a shower, no water's running, no washing machine, nothing. And I thought, uh uh-oh. So I stood in our bathroom and I listened and it sounded like somebody was showering under the house. (laughs) And it turns out there was a full bathroom down there and a shower and it was just fine, right? We had tenants. I didn't know it. No. Yeah. I go down into the crawl space and a, a, uh, pipe had broken free entirely from its joint and scalding hot water was spraying like a fire hose underneath the house, just like a fire hose. And it had been so doing it for you continued your shower down there. <laughs> exactly. No, it's way too hot. It only been going for five or 10 minutes and already this crawl space was starting to fill with water. And so I, I turned off the water and called the plumber. Plumber came and he said, there's a class action lawsuit around these particular joints because they have a tendency to pop. And if you're not home when it happens, or if you don't recognize that sound of water running under your house as a problem, it can be catastrophic. He said, even a few hours and much less, of, you know, if you're gone for a weekend, a few days of that water just pouring into your basement. Um, so I just like to very modestly say, Sarah, this weekend, I saved the house. <laughs> so the whole story was a humble brag. So let me just walk through all the bragging <laughs> that happened in that story. One, you were jogging on Saturday night. 
Two, I guess even really that you took a shower after jogging because I know <laughs> like some people would just be like, meh, just, yeah. whatever. We've been Hygiene married a long time. Hygiene is a priority. Yes, yeah. of course. Okay, so I'll, um, the shower is like half credit. Um, three, that you are, you know, have the hearing of a bat, right? That like you're hearing, you could hear the, the sound of the water. Four, that you went under the crawl space yourself. Five, that you recognized the problem. Um, and did this heroic thing. Cause as you know, the water was scalding down there. You could have been horribly injured, but yeah. uh, uh, you were able to do that heroic thing and discern what the damage was. The pipe had come loose from its joint. So also that, you know, the term joint was probably a humble brag in there that you're basically <laughs> a plumber. Um, and lastly, basically. that you saved the house. That was a lot. It was a good moment for me, Sarah. <laughs> And Nancy will tell you, I've not stopped talking about. I was going to say, I'm sure Nancy is so pleased that she married yeah. you. Like, that's what this whole story is about is, <laughs> see, this is why you married me. I run, I shower, I go into the crawl space. I do these things for you. Caveman, bring back bison. Rawr. I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> no, but I did. I saved the house. And there's a class action lawsuit. And it, what was it called? They're called pecked joints. Is that right? Anyway, so they're, they're flawed, they're a problem, and they can break free for no reason. All right, with that, listeners, again, hop in the comment section, send us your questions for the next episode, and uh, we'll talk to you then. Thanks. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.